scripture reading for today comes out of Revelation 12, uh, and this would be a good one. We've talked about this throughout this Revelation series, but to maybe close your eyes and kind of imagine what is going on. Uh, John, throughout this whole letter, is talking about seeing, and so one of the ways we can see is with our mind's eye. So let me read all of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I just, I just want to acknowledge how thankful I am that, yes, within our individual Christian lives, but, but here as the gathered church, you are with us here. I just feel that so acutely today that your presence is among us, and there are things that you want to say to us, there are things that you want to 
kind of speak over us from the gospel that hopefully will undo some of the things around shame and accusation like we're going to talk about today. And God, I just believe that your spirit wants to work in our hearts. And so I, I pray that today as we, we talk about Satan and his schemes at undoing our faith, God, I, I pray that you would help us to not, to not get lost in the imagery, but to see the truth for which it is pointing toward and, and to be assured of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, just even right now, where there is any shame, where there is a, a burden on our hearts today, something that we carry that we cannot get over, Father, I pray that your spirit would help us, would give us a fresh vision of who Jesus is and what he's done, what that means for us today. And so, Father, toward that end, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us to be assured of your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. The theologian, A.W. Tozer, once said that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I, and I, I believe he's right. The, the thought of who God is and what he is like is the most important thing about you. Now, now that stands true regardless of whichever religion you subscribe to, that the thought of a supernatural being who has created us and to whom we owe some sort of praise or worship, that will drive everything about your life. The ideas, the images, even the emotions that pop up when you think about God well, that, that will drive everything you think about your relationships, everything you think about in your money, how you plan your life, how you think about your career, how you raise your kids, and how you find your place in the world. What comes to our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us because we can very quickly draw a line between what you think about God and how you're living your actual life. What you think about God is one of the most important things about you. But there's another knowledge that you might say is equally important. <laughs> what, what, what we think about God drives all of our life. But right alongside that, what we think of ourselves. What we think of ourselves is important. We must know God and know ourselves. That's what drives our life. Now, that, that's not just some modern idea that comes from the obsession with ourselves that we certainly have today. We today are obsessed about ourselves and we live our lives kind of supporting and implementing what you might call project self, right? It's what all of our culture is pursuing and working on is project self. Well, what I'm talking about is not that. No, no the, the necessity of a true knowledge of ourselves is actually a truth that the Christian church has held for a long time. Even the, the great reformer, John Calvin, in his first section of his massive work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, that whole first section deals with the necessity of these two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. 
before he goes on spending 2,500 pages plumbing the depths and riches of Christian theology, he first establishes that the most important things to have is first a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of yourself. I believe that if you have a truthful, cohesive, vibrant knowledge of God and of yourself, you can make it. (laughs) You can thrive. With, With those things in mind, life can throw you almost anything and you will make it. Yes, life will still be painful. Things will still be difficult for sure. But from a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of yourself, you can have a foundation that is strong enough to support you so that when life does throw those things your way, you're not tossed to and fro. You have a foundation. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. But there's a problem with this. When I I say that the most important thing about us is what we think about God and what we think of ourselves, I imagine that many of us think, okay, I can pursue that. I can do that. I just need to incorporate a a few spiritual disciplines into my life so that I can know God more. And and maybe I'll start keeping a journal so that I can keep track of who I am and and know myself more truthfully. Well, that's a a problem. What's the problem with that? Well, at, at first glance, nothing. You should seek to incorporate spiritual disciplines in your life in order to know God more and be near to him. And I would wholeheartedly recommend the practice of journaling. The problem, though, is that many of the ideas we have about pursuing knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves, they're often done with the right efforts, efforts, but they are also often done with the wrong context in mind. Let Let me explain what I mean. We think that knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves is something that we can seek unabated. Nothing there in front of us. I've seen it so many times where someone gets excited about seeking God and and sees the necessity of having a truthful knowledge of themselves. And it it starts off that pursuit thinking that it will be a pursuit that that won't meet any resistance. We so often, we we see, okay, yeah, I I should know God more and it's important for me to know myself and those two things together will actually lead to a flourishing life. Then we start implementing all these practices, but we come into it almost naive, thinking that we're not going to meet any resistance. And I'm not talking about the resistance of our occasional laziness. No, there is a deeper, more sinister power that works against us and seeks to resist our efforts toward a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of ourselves. I wanna wake you up to something today. The problem is this. When you really seek to know God and know yourself, you are not doing it in the context of neutrality or even safety. But you are doing that within the context of warfare, of battle. The Christian scriptures unapologetically put forward the reality of powerful, personal, purposeful evil in the world. And throughout the narrative of scripture, this personal evil is shown to do anything, anything necessary to spoil a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of us as human beings. 
there is going to be resistance. When you wake up to the necessity of knowing God and knowing yourself, you are waking up into a fight, friends. It's going to be great resistance. And, and, and to this fight, to this great battle, we, we turn in our section of Revelation today. And as we examine this section today, I really just want to walk away with one thing, okay? I have one point for you that's going to have some subpoints underneath it, okay? And it's this. Resilience and perseverance in the Christian life hinges upon knowing the schemes of evil and knowing how to fight back. That's the basic point today. You making it as a Christian, being resilient, having perseverance, like, like we've talked about throughout, the, throughout this whole letter of Revelation, to have that, it hinges upon knowing the schemes of evil, what's coming against you, and then actually knowing how to, to fight back. That's it, that, that's what we're gonna unpack today, okay? So let's jump in. All right, let's, let's talk about this. Now, now the text starts off with this. A great sign appeared in heaven. And then it, then it goes on to describe a, a woman, a dragon, and a child. And, and so far, in Revelation, the Apostle John has kind of received his visions that have gone somewhat in order. But this vision here in Revelation 12 actually disrupts that order. This is, this is important to, to recognize because remember, the, the question when reading Revelation is not what happens next, but what does John see next? It's not always in chronological order. Sometimes the, the book shoots off in all kinds of directions when it comes to its use of time. Sometimes John's vision is a vision of the future, sometimes of the present, and sometimes a vision of something that has actually already happened. And this vision here in Revelation 12 that he has is something that has actually already happened. So, so in this vision, he sees a, a great dragon, right? Seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems, all meant to show that this dragon is powerful and wealthy, right? Horns, symbol of power, diadems, symbol of wealth. But despite all of the dragon's power and wealth to accomplish his purposes, it shows in the text that he's, he's defeated. <laughs> and defeated by what? A child. <laughs> The, the woman gives birth to a child, and as the text says, this child will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. What is all this pointing toward? <laughs> well, it, it's pointing toward something that has already happened, and it happened 95 years before the Apostle John wrote this in a manger. <laughs> John's vision is the cosmic viewpoint of the birth and victory of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in Revelation 12. The birth of Jesus was the beginning of the end for the work of, of evil. And even when Jesus came into the world before he had even done anything, evil sought to devour him just as John's vision shows, right? If you remember the nativity scene, whenever Jesus was born, there's an evil king named Herod who is afraid of having his throne taken away by some supposed new king. And so he orders that every male child under the age of two be murdered. That is evil seeking to devour Jesus. Before he's still, as he's still learning to walk, Jesus is already at risk. And so John's vision here is the cosmic viewpoint of the Christmas narrative. Maybe this year for Advent, we'll do cosmic Christmas, right? And let's talk about dragons and, and all that, and maybe. 
And after the woman and the child escape the dragon, he, he goes on fighting, but eventually he is thrown down and defeated. And the dragon, he's, he's representing Satan, the chief worker of evil. We see that later in the text. He's thrown down. He's defeated. Past tense. He is defeated. Which to me is like, boom, that's it, right? Story over. Sermon done. Let's sing. No, 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 there's, there's more to be done. Though he is defeated, he is not yet fully vanquished. In Satan's defeat, he goes on to make war against God's people, which is the, the battle that we're going to get into here in a little bit. But I wanted to start off giving just a little bit of the context of this battle, because this is our battle. <laughs> we'll get into how evil seeks to fight against God's people and spoil our, our knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. But it's first important to recognize that though the battle against us may feel fierce, we've got to recognize the context from which we fight. If you're a Christian, you're in a fight. You're in a battle, whether you signed up for it or not. You are in a battle. But it's important to see that the context of that battle is from victory and not for it. Because as we get into the battle here, some things are going to feel really heavy and really hard, but it's important for you to see from the outset what you're getting into, what you are into, is already a battle that's been won. Satan is defeated. Satan and his minions have been dealt a mortal wound. Though they linger on in their last ditch efforts to war against God's kingdom. Which means as we get into how to battle and, and recognizing how Satan wars against God's people, it's good to remember that it is not on your shoulders to achieve a victory. Sometimes you see these streams of Christianity that make it seem as though it's all up to us. <laughs> that is on your shoulders. You have a role to play, without a doubt. But the battle, the end, is already decided. Our war against personal evil is not something that we should feel a sense of anxiety about. And certainly never a sense of, of hopelessness about. Precisely because we are living from victory and not for it. That's the context of our battle. Certain, assured, achieved victory. But what's, what's the content of our battle? As a Christian, if, if you've, by trusting in Jesus, have walked into a war, what's actually going on there? Well, the, the text shows that, that Satan has been thrown down, but in that defeat, his reaction is to lash back with great fury, right? Because as verse 12 shows, he, he knows that his time is short. And there's a specific way that he lashes back, and it's found in verse 10. Listen to this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Here it is, friends. Here's the one thing that I want you to know. If you don't remember anything else from today, it's this. Your battle against evil 
is happening within the content, context of your conscience. <laughs> the, the, the chief tool of Satan, the chief scheme of Satan in his battle against the church is this accusation. That's his favorite thing to do. Evil's favorite way to war against the victory of Jesus Christ is found in your personal conscience. That's where it's going down. Sure, there's a whole lot of evil in the world. The schemes of Satan certainly work themselves out through violence and dysfunction and degradation all throughout the world. But the place that he has planted his most strategic efforts is not out in the world, but it is within your conscience. What Satan wants to spoil more than anything is how you feel about you and how you think God feels about you. That is where he has planted his most strategic efforts. If he can spoil that, he's got you. That is the place of our warfare. Satan's fury about his own defeat is channeled into a purposeful, personal unraveling of your peace before God. Think about it for a second, friends. This great dragon, who has seven heads, which is meant to show some pretty good wisdom, ten horns, which is meant to show some pretty big power, seven diadems, which is meant to show some pretty big wealth, that has focused in on your conscience. The strategy of evil has zeroed in on the one thing that really matters, the one thing that will take you out of the faith quicker than anything, and that is to unravel your peace before God. And this connects back to what I talked about at the beginning, a, a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of yourself is meant to be spoiled by Satan through accusation so that you think harsh thoughts of God and even degrading thoughts of yourself. This is where the battle happens. If you are going to make it in the Christian life, you've got to understand that this area of accusation is the battleground for your faith. It's not all the things out in the world. It's not all the things that you so often might feel threatened by or uncomfortable by as a Christian living in Seattle. Those aren't the main strategies of evil. The main tactic of evil is whatever happens whenever you're laying down in bed and you think, gosh, I can't believe I did that. When are you, when are you gonna learn? When are you gonna get over this? When are you gonna change that? is the place where evil is trying to undo you through accusation. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit together. Accusation and its accompanying shame, why is it so effective? If Satan is so smart and so powerful and so wealthy, why has he zeroed in on this? Why is it his favorite tool of revenge against God's victory? There's lots of different ways, but let me just give one. The reason why accusation 
can be so effective in warring against our faith is because accusation tells a story. Accusation tells you a story. You see, when when Satan rubs your face in your sins and seeks to accuse you and shame you, he's not just trying to rehearse the facts. No, he's trying to tell a story. The accusation is not just a retelling of what happened, but actually a telling of who you are. Accusation and its accompanying shame doesn't just tell us what we did, but it is seeking to tell us who we are, who you are. It's seeking to define a narrative, define an identity of who you are. And I connect accusation with shame because accusation is meant to foster shame. If all we had to deal with was a sense of guilt, we could fight easier against that. Guilt tells us we've done something wrong and we can acknowledge that. But shame tells us that not only we did something, but that we are something. It's trying to tell a story. Accusation and shame seek to weave together a story so that we walk away with a subhuman identity. No longer are we human beings made in the image of God, certainly not. And most certainly are we not redeemed children of a gracious God. No, after, after accusation and shame gets to us, we are much less than that, or at least we feel like it. We are subhuman, calling ourselves by the name of our sins. Accusation and shame cuts us down. It's no longer about something we did, but it's about who we are. Man, I I remember this whenever, I've told this story before, but whenever I was 17, I was in a a long relationship with my high school sweetheart at that point, Uh, and and though I had grown up in the church, uh, there were so many things that I had just like kept hidden and had never shared with anyone. Until one day, things came out and my, my real sense of sinfulness was not only felt by me, but also out there for others to see as well. And I'll never forget this moment. Sitting on the, the back porch of my high school girlfriend's uh, house. And obviously, what, the things that I had done, they, they, they deserve to be called out. They deserve to feel a sense of conviction about. But there was a moment at the end of that conversation that eventually ended up unraveling our relationship where she looked at me and she said, you're disgusting, you know that? You are disgusting. To which I said, I know, I am. I am disgusting. And that narrative has been weaving through my life for the last 14 years since then. Trying to undo what I assented to in that. No longer was I, was I a, a dumb 17-year-old who needed some counseling and needed some help. No, I was disgusting. It's who I was, it's what I was. That's what accusation and shame wants to do. It's not rehearsing the facts. It's trying to get you to believe something about you, that this is your identity. 
What is it for you? Maybe you pop off at your kids and evil doesn't just remind you of your sins, but reminds you of your parents. Reminds you of them. See, I knew it. I knew you were just like her. I knew you were just like him. That's who you are. You're just an angry parent who you're, and your kids are going to grow up to resent you just like you resent your parents. Accusation and shame. Or maybe you carry within you the memory of one single act. And, and you can trace back your shame to that, whatever that is. That one relationship that went too far. That moment of broken integrity. That moment where selfishness mowed down the life of another person. And it has become the pivot point upon which your life turns or wobbles. It's the one thing. You can't get past it. You can't get over it. And it has clung to you for so long that you no longer remember what it was like to not carry it. It's become the defining point of who you are. Accusation and shame. Do you see the sinister nature of it all? It's, it's somewhat easier to move on from the cold facts, right? Yes, I, I, I did this, or, or this is what happened. It's much harder to shake an identity. You can move on from what you did. You cannot move on from who you think you are. An accusation and shame is meant to make you into something that you are. You, because of that difficulty of shaking that identity, evil has so many of you, I know it, tightly wrapped and contorted with this sense of stress, of perpetual hiding, and the loss of intimacy because of that hiding. I know, even though this is summer at Icon Church and there's not that many people here, I know there are dozens of people here who are contorted in their souls with a sense of shame and are carrying this sense of stress who feel like there's no one that they can talk to. And because of that, there's no one they can connect to because they keep hiding. Accusation. And shame. Do you see the sinister nature of how it can so quickly just take you out? You can go on for a little bit kind of hiding and acting like you have everything okay. You continue to show up to church. You continue to show up to community group. But deeply inward, you are wilting away. That's the work of evil. That's the work of Satan. So what do we do? How do we, how do we fight back? Well, there, in verse 11, I think we see it. It says this. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the chief scheme of Satan is accusation. And I'm here to tell you, friends, that the only way to fight back is to appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. You don't have any other chance 
Fighting back against accusation and its accompanying shame looks like you understanding what the blood of the lamb means for you. You see, that's why I love it. It says that they have conquered. Already we've seen that Satan has been defeated, but then the Apostle John says that all these other people, all these Christians, they have conquered. They moved past the accusation. They conquered the shame. And how did they do it? Through the blood of the lamb. Which means that us as Christians, if we're gonna make it, if we're gonna fight back against this sinister evil of shame, We've got to appropriate the blood, the blood of the lamb and see what that means for us. So what does it mean? What, what, is, what, are some, what are some things about the blood of the lamb, about Jesus Christ and his cross that we can begin to take on and really believe so that we get out of shame and are moved past those accusations? Here's, here's just a few, okay? First, One of the ways that you can appropriate the blood of the lamb, taking and seeing the cross of Jesus for you, is you can see this. You have already been outed as a sinner. (laughs) The blood of the lamb, the cross of Jesus Christ, cuts down accusation by outing you already as a sinner. And I know that might sound backwards, but when you see Jesus Christ crucified, and you see, oh, that was done for me, that says some things about you. It, evil does, it, the, the power of accusation is slowly taken away because of course you're a sinner. It took Jesus dying for you to save you. Do you recognize the power of that? When you see that what it took to save you is the death of the Son of God. That's enough outing as you'll ever need. Accusation slowly gets its power sucked away from that because it's no longer a surprise. Of course you're a sinner. Jesus already said that on the cross. He wouldn't have died if he weren't. It's good news. Shame so often works because it forces you into hiding. But with the public death of Jesus, you no longer have to act like you have it together. None of us have it together. That's why Jesus died. Of course you're messed up. Of course you are. That was shown by what it took to save you. You don't have to hide that or dismiss that. But rather, the cross of Jesus can keep you from having shame push you into dark shadows. Because the cross of Christ has already publicly outed each and every one of us as a sinner. More than that, to appropriate the blood of the lamb, to see the cross of Jesus Christ and how it works against accusation and shame is to see, and I know that you know this, but God, I am praying that their hearts understand this. That you are already loved. Present tense, perfect tense, everything. Hard stop. You are loved. The cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, shows that God is not waiting for you to get it together before he can love you, before he can even like you. God is not waiting on a future version of you. I know you are. I know you're waiting on a future version of you that you can feel better about. Maybe you'll be more confident and a little less sinful. God's not waiting for that. God's already decided he's going to love you. 
And we see that in the cross of Jesus Christ, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is not waiting for some future version of you to love that he's going to enjoy just a little bit more. No, Christ died while you were still nothing more than a sinner. You had nothing to offer. Your whole life was lived, revolved around sin. Then Christ died for you. Then you were loved. And notice that I said you are loved. You are loved. Identity, identity, identity. That's the story. That's the narrative to buy into because it's the true one. You are loved. The cross of Jesus Christ proves it. And more than that, the cross of Christ shows that this love is ready to love you at your absolute worst. God didn't, Jesus didn't die for a neutral version of you. <laughs> it's not like God added up all your good days and all your bad days. And he's like, oh, he's kind of worth dying for. She's kind of worth dying for. No, he saw you at your worst. And he died for you there. Which means he loved you there. Listen, if God doesn't love you at your worst, he's never loved you truly at all. But he does love you at your worst. Because he loves you truly. The cross of Jesus Christ, when we see its power, when we appropriate what it means and what it shows, slowly shame and accusation just begins to fall off our shoulders. And I don't have anything to prove. Jesus had to die for me. What makes me think I would be any better than what I actually am? <laughs> and yet Christ died for me. I'm loved, and I'm loved at my worst. If you see that, if you believe that, if you receive that as the true story of your life, accusation and shame begins to lose its spoil. It begins to fall off. So friends, today, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, whatever you're feeling. When I say the word accusation, when I say the word shame, and that thing comes to your mind, and if nothing comes to your mind, go see a counselor because you're repressing something. <laughs> Whatever comes to your mind there, there is where Jesus died for you. There is where God wants to pour over his love, unabated. It's not, God's not flinching at that, that piece of you. He wants to show you his love. Now, friends, I, I have one small application for you in this, and uh, it might terrify you, but it's okay. One of the ways that we can have the love and grace of God reinforced within our hearts is to see that love and that grace come from the mouth of another Christian. The reason why you're hiding is because it, it, it's a preemptive moving away, right? That's what shame does. We assume this person's not going to accept us, this God is not going to accept us, and so I'm just gonna move away preemptively so that I don't have to experience that rejection. But when you find someone, a trusted friend, 
who you can share with your deepest and darkest wounds, the things that you've done and the things that have been done to you, that friend, and they respond to you with grace, they respond to you with love, you know what that does? That reinforces everything we're talking about here. Man, to see that there's a, there's a human being outside of you who has another brain, another heart, another everything, and they are responding to you with grace. That reinforces that within your own psyche, that grace is real, that grace is enough. And so friends, find a friend, find a trusted believer in Jesus Christ who you know knows the grace of God and who can apply that to you at your deepest and most vulnerable points. You can't go on this thing alone. I already said it. You are not yourself by yourself. And that is especially true here. You will not be able to get over accusation and shame by only appropriating the blood of the lamb within your own mind. Because there's a lot of things in your own mind that are going to prevent that. You need someone else to break through all that mess and say, you have been forgiven by God. You've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. Be assured of God's love. When you hear that from the words of a friend, from the words of a brother or a sister in Christ, it seems as though you're hearing it from the very, word, from the very mouth of God. And assures us enough to begin to get over accusation and shame, to move into our true identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you see We, we, we can only see on the outside, but, but you see through down to the depths of who we are. There's no part of us that is unknown to you. There's no action we've done that's been a surprise. And at first that might sound threatening, but God, what a mercy that is. To know that there's nothing I can do there's nothing my friends can do that will all of a sudden surprise you and just disillusion you from loving us. No. You've seen it all. You know it all. Still you love us. What a grace you've shown us. And Father, I'm asking that your spirit would help us to, to let go of the barriers to let go of all the things we think about ourselves and all the things that have been said about us and to just hear what you say. That we are loved, we are covered, we are forgiven, and that truth, that identity is not going anywhere because you're not going anywhere. God, would you help us to believe that? Father, as, as we reflect and as we Maybe confess to you the, the areas of, of shame that we carry. Would your spirit just minister to your people and bring grace and assurance and peace?
peace. And God, give us that trusted friend. (laughs) Give us that friend who we can know will be safe for us, who knows grace enough to be able to give it back to us. God, give us that, and even give us wisdom on if that friend is already in our life. God, be with us. Help us. Keep us from evil. The tactics and strategies of evil that wants to undo our faith through shame and accusation. God, protect us. God, fight for us. And let your love and grace assure us in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.